Good morning. We are continuing today in a series entitled, Those, can you do like this with me? Good, Those People. And uh, today we're going to be talking about uh, something that uh, probably is germane to all of us, hypocrites. A hypocrite is a Christian who says one thing and does another. You ever been guilty of that? Ever in your life you have said one thing and, and said, here's what I believe, here's what I'm going to do, here's who I am, here's what I'm going I'm to look like on Sunday morning, and then went out and did something completely, absolutely different. It can, it can run the gamut of sin, I think. Uh, some of us who are hypocrites, we've got some great big secret. We're completely different in some way. Others are just a little more subtle in their hypocrisy, right? You can decide for yourself where you fit in. Let me give you an example of uh, some subtle hypocrisy. Somebody comes up to you and they'll say something like this, I don't mean to complain, but... I'm not a complainer, but here we go, right? Or how about this? I don't mean to be negative. You ever say that? Before you say the most hateful thing you can say? You ever say that to your wife or your husband? I don't mean to be negative, but you're an idiot, right? <laughs> Anybody ever say that? You get what I'm going at. I don't mean to be, we don't say that in church. We say this, I don't mean to be mean-spirited, as if that's more righteous. I don't mean to be mean-spirited, but bless your heart, which means you're stupid, right? Think about it. Bless your heart, you're stupid. I don't mean to gossip. I don't mean to carry tales, but guess what happened? You ever been a part of a church where uh, you couldn't tell the difference between the local gossip line and the prayer chain? So it happens all around us, doesn't it? I don't mean to be this way, but here's what I'm going to do. And almost immediately after you declare you're not going to do something, then you do it. Probably the very most or the, the grossest uh, misuse of hypocrisy is when you start with this sentence. I don't mean to talk about the preacher, but... Now, if you hear that anywhere, you come tell me immediately, all right? So we're going to look today at hypocrisy, and I want to begin with kind of just giving you a, uh, a definition for hypocrisy. But before I give you that, that, that definition, I want you to understand that until 2014, every poll that, that, that uh, anyone who did Christian polling did said that the number one reason why people don't come to church who are not believers, who are not related to the church, is guess what? Hypocrites. And I had this big story to tell you about that. And then I saw the polls for last year. And now that has been replaced with the church isn't relevant. We'll get to a sermon on that at some point. But for many years, folks haven't, or at least said they didn't come to church, because the church 
was full of hypocrites. They didn't say there were a few there. They said it was full of hypocrites. So I want you to think today, are they right about me? Are they right about me? And here's the definition for hypocrisy. An actor, an actor, do you feel like you can be yourself when you come to church? Or do you have to be an actor or an actress? A stage player, one who hides behind a mask. Here's a vivid example of what I'm talking about. Become so hard to see. The world is on their way to you, but they're tripping over me. Always looking around, but never looking up. I'm so double minded. A plank eyed saint with dirty hands and a heart divided. Oh, Jesus. Friend of sinners, open our eyes to the world at the end of our pointing fingers. Let our hearts be led by mercy. Help us reach with open hearts. In Matthew 15, Jesus addressed this very topic, and he quoted the prophet Isaiah, verses 7 and 8. Jesus, in in great big bold letters, screamed out, Hypocrites! Isaiah prophesied about you, saying, Those people who draw near to me with their mouth, saying one thing. Those people who draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips. Can you pray a pretty prayer? Those people who draw near to me with their mouths and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Man, that's a convicting verse, isn't it, if you stop and think about it? Because we're here and we're going through the motions and and we're seeking truth. And and we're saying the right things. And I'm glad that every person who's here is here because God's got a chance to work on us today. But the fact is that for so many of us, our, our, our words are a long way away from our actions and who we are on the outside. A long way from who we are on the inside. So how do we deal with the problem of hypocrisy? How do we at least lessen, because I'm not sure we can ever be, uh, I don't think we can ever really cleanse ourselves completely from hypocrisy, 
But how do we make it better? What do we do to take steps to, to move from a place of, of deep hypocrisy to where we're doing our very best to honor God with our lives? Uh, I want to teach you some prayers to pray. And, and, and some of these are kind of relational in the sense that we're going to attack this from if, if we see someone who's stumbling, if we see someone who's struggling, if we see someone who, who really their lives don't mirror what they've claimed to be, how do we as a church or how do we as individuals help them to move from a place of hypocrisy to a place of obedience? And then, not only are we going to look at it from that perspective, I want us to say, you know, what do I do about myself? What do I do about me not being who I should be. Here's the first prayer. If you should confront someone, your goal should be to confront them with the goal of restoration. What's restoration mean in the church? It means you are far from God or you had drifted or backslid is a word we sometimes use. You'd moved away from God your life had gone in the wrong direction, and then someone who loves you, a, a person who, who has a concern for what's happening in your life, comes to you and helps you to draw closer to God, to get back where you would like to be. But so often in the church, we don't confront people with the goal of restoration. It's almost like we confront people with the goal of feeling better about myself. If there's something going on in my life, that shouldn't be there. If there's a problem, an issue, a sin, if I'm struggling with, a, uh, with, with an addiction or an obsession or a burden or, you know, just, just have some habits that I shouldn't have, if I can find someone who's doing more than I am wrong, and that's kind of easy here, right? Amen? Uh, if I can find someone who it, it, on the surface of on the surface, it, it appears like their life is a little rougher than mine, and I can go to them and say, you know what, buddy, you need to straighten out. You need to get this fixed in your life right now, and, and if you don't get it fixed, there's going to be, you know, trouble, going to be hell to pay, right? Because that's what you end up paying if you're not right with God. And that kind of, uh, of confrontation which is mean-spirited, which is judgmental, which is condemning, serves to make me feel better about myself and does nothing to bring improvement or restoration in their life. If your goal is not to see someone grow spiritually, to see someone change internally, to see someone draw closer to God, to see someone save their life, then when you're confronting them, you're making a terrible mistake. Here's what it says in Galatians 6.1. Brethren, here, here's the scriptural basis for this. If a brother or a man is overtaken by any trespass, by any mistake, by any sin, by any uh, negative habit, if a person is overtaken by any trespass, you who are spiritual, you like to think of yourself as spiritual, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of what? Gentleness. Most folks who are confrontational forget gentleness, don't you? They start out that way, 
I've had people come to me and start out a sentence, start out a confrontation with this sentence. Brother, I'd like to talk to you in the spirit of love. Sometimes they'll take it another step in the love of Christ. I'd like to talk to you. And, and, and let me tell you, when that conversation starts to move along a little bit, the spirit of gentleness, the spirit of the love of Christ kind of shoots out the window, right? You ever been in a, in a business meeting? Yep, somebody will stand up back there, and, and, and you can see it in their eyes. They're not happy. And, and they'll start what they're going to say in a Baptist business meeting by saying something like this. You know, I, I, I don't want to cause any trouble here today, but here's exactly what I think in the spirit of love and kindness and, and Christian benevolence. Here's what I think. Before they're finished, most of that's gone out the window, isn't it? And, and many, many times in our life when, when we do what the Bible tells us to do here, which is to go to someone and try to help them restore, it comes out one way or another. In fact, when we think about this thing, there are really two extremes. There are some people over here who say, you know what, I'm never going to confront anybody. They're kind of, what's the French word, uh, Kent, laissez-faire, did I say that right? Teaching you guys French today, but this kind of shooting pat, kind of shooting pat over your head. Yeah, that's a good word. It means that you're apathetic about it. You you don't care if somebody's doing something; it's their business. You'll say, if they're making a big mistake, I'm not going to get involved. You're just completely apathetic about it, and you refuse to go to them and just say, "What can I do to help you?" And then on the other side of the coin. There are those folks who just can't wait to see you mess up so they can come breathing down your neck. In fact, I, I think that there are people who sit outside, not my house, but Kent's and Jeff's and, and Chris's and other people on the staff just waiting, and Kent lives a long way away. They're just waiting to see them mess up so they can be confront, confrontational. There are some people who can't wait to be judgmental and condemning and who never, ever get to a place of restoration, they kind of feel like it's their job just to expose, hurt, condemn, judge, and literally tear someone apart. I've seen churches do that over and over again. I've talked to people who've come into my office and said, I was involved in this church, and, and this happened in my life, and you would have thought that I was the worst person in the world. And listen to me. There is nothing that destroys the cause of Christ more than a mean-spirited, judgmental, condemning person who thinks it's their job to confront people with their sin. Happens over and over and over again. So, prayer number one. Lord, help me to confront a hypocrite with the cause of restoration. Continuing on in that verse, I want you to see the very last sentence in Galatians 6.1. It, it says, you should restore such in a spirit of gentleness. But here's what it says next. Considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. You see that? So not only do you confront people with the goal of restoration, you confront people with caution. With caution. Why do you use caution? Because the devil not only works on that person that you're dealing with, that you're confronting, that you're helping to restore, 
The devil works on who else? Not the preacher, guys, you. That's who I mean, all right? Got that? The devil works on all of us, right? I like that. You, you said. And if you're not careful, when you begin to confront and to especially condemn, when you begin to tear someone else down, the devil might say, you know, that person right there, I want to do double duty there. I'm going to go to work on them. And here's another thing that I think is really true. When, uh, when, when you begin to have something wrong in your life, uh, when you start to fall into a sin, when you start to fall into hypocrisy, uh, it becomes such a big thing, a barrier, uh, something that you can't move past. That particular sin weighs so heavy on you that you start to see it over and over again. You start to complain about it in people's lives. You start to bring it up. Uh, one church I pastored, there was a guy there, and uh, he, he came to me every Sunday for six or eight weeks, and he said, I want you to preach on the sin of homosexuality. I want you to preach on that. Our church needs a sermon on that. And I consider that to be a sin, but no different than any other sexual sin that people commit. And so when I finally got around to listening to him and preaching on it, when actually when God told me to, not when he did, that's the sermon I preached about sexual sins that we all fall into. And he was furious. He said, how could you lump that in with every other sin? It's terrible. It's, it, and he just went on and on. He came to a, a Wednesday evening Bible study. And he got up at the end of the Bible study. When I asked for questions, I've learned never to do that. <laughs> he, he, he got up and he said, how come we don't preach truth in this church? Well, we had a long, long meeting after that. I'll just say that. And you know what I found out later? Guess what his sin was? Guess what his sin was? And so, you see, when you start to confront people, when you start to, to act like that you could never or would never allow that to happen in your own life, that's exactly when it happens. You confront people with caution because every person in this room is susceptible to some kind of sin. The devil is not going to leave any of us wrong, along, right? He's not. Number three, God, help me to see when I'm the hypocrite. God, help me to see when I'm the hypocrite. Matter of fact, before we can even begin to think about confronting someone with the goal of restoration, moving someone to a place closer to heaven, we need to have a long time in prayer where we ask God to cleanse our heart and our lives, don't we? Because being a hypocrite is something that is so difficult to avoid. I mean, it happens all the time. I, uh, I spent uh, Friday and Saturday in Stanford, Kentucky, where I used to pastor, and uh, it caused me to remember a certain incident in my life that, that kind of gets to this idea of hypocrisy. I was 
driving down US 27, and, and this guy in kind of a sports car comes by me and literally passes me and blows the windows off my car. And a little while later, he, he slows down in his nice big red Corvette, and, and I'm back there in my Mazda piece of junk. And, uh, and I nearly crash into him because he's kind of irritated me, and I'm trying to catch him to let him know, you know, uh, how I feel about his driving and how jealous I am of his car and how I don't like him or his family or anybody, even though I didn't know who he was. And so I don't quite catch him there after he's blown by me, and I've nearly rammed him. He keeps going. And finally, we get to a stoplight, and I roll up there beside him, and I'm trying to think of how mean I can be, what gesture I can use without being crude, what I can say to this jerk who's blown by me, who has a better car, who looks to have a better life. And, and I get up there beside him, I look over, and it was a guy who visited the church Sunday. In fact, I had his visitor's card right there beside me on the dash. And I said, brother, you're a fine driver. <laughs> wish I had that car. But how easy it is for us to slip into hypocrisy, isn't it? You get a little mad, you lose your religion. Remember we used to say that? You lose your religion. You forget who you are. You forget who you're related to. And you start to do stupid things. Help me, Lord, remember that I'm a hypocrite. Remember, David, Remember the story of when he fell into sin? I mean, when David sinned, he sinned in a big way, didn't he? He didn't just mess around. He sinned in a big way. He was up on his rooftop one day, and he looked over, and he saw a beautiful young woman bathing, and he should have turned the other direction. But instead of turning the other direction, he stared. If he'd had an iPhone, he'd have took a picture. He stared. He stared. And he stared long enough and hard enough. And because he was king and could have anybody or anything he wanted, he claimed Bathsheba. He sent for her, slept with her, got her pregnant. He was trapped. Her husband was a loyal foot soldier. A man had gone to battle for David many times, a man by the name of Uriah. David sent to his general Abner a message saying, put Uriah on the front line. Wow. As David suspected and probably hoped, Uriah was killed. Murder, really. Adultery, murder. And he thought he got away with it. He thought he got away with it. And one day, the prophet Nathan knocked on his door. Whoa, it's a bad thing when a prophet knocks on your door. Isn't it? Nathan knocks on David's door. Can you see him? David sitting there on the throne, and Nathan kind of, you know, prophets. When I hear the word prophet, I think about woolly-looking guys, don't you? kind of outdoorsy, you know, like, I don't care what I say, I'm going to tell you the truth kind of guy. Never, ever have lunch with anybody like that. 
So David's on the throne. He's sitting there, and, and, and Nathan says, I got a story for you, David. David, like you and me, liked a good story. He said, hit me with it. Nathan said, you know, there was a really rich guy, landowner. He had a thousand sheep, maybe more, too many to count. And his best friend, his neighbor, well, he wasn't rich at all. Didn't have anything, really, but he did have one sheep. And he loved that sheep. Matter of fact, it was kind of a pet to him. He loved him. Raised him, nurtured him. Couldn't stand to be apart from him. He loved that sheep. And one day a guest came to their community, and the guest deserved a, a, a banquet. And so the rich guy said, we're going to kill a, kill a sheep, kill a lamb. But instead of choosing one of his thousands, he walked past them. And he plucked his poor neighbor's sheep, that little pet lamb, and he killed it. Well, somewhere along the way in that story, David stood up and he said, that is the worst story I've ever heard. That has incensed me. I'm furious. That man should be killed. That man should be... Oh, and Nathan said, can you see that long, bony, pointy finger? You're the man. You're that man, David. You're that man. David could have had anybody he wanted, but he took another man's life. It's another man's precious life. You're that man, David. I wonder if you've heard God say that to you at times. I know I have. When I've tried to consider other people's sins rather than mine, when I have forgotten disappointments that I've caused God to have, I wonder if you've heard God say that to you. It's you. Don't look at anyone else. It's you. Later, David prayed a prayer that I believe may be the most touching prayer in all of Scripture. It's found in, in Psalm 51. God created me a clean heart. Would you just say that with me? God created me a clean heart. Renew a steadfast spirit in me. Don't cast me away from your presence. You ever had to say that to God? God, I don't even deserve to talk to you. God, I don't even deserve to be in your house. Please, please, please don't cast me away from your presence. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. There have been some times that I thought the Holy Spirit might move out on me. How about you? Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of my salvation. Amen. You see, I don't know that hypocrisy and joy are very good bedfellows, are they? And 
most of us sort of live lives where we kind of flip back and forth between living in the joy of our salvation and doing everything we can to lose that joy because of our hypocrisy. Restore to me the joy of my salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit. Do you see God that way? A generous spirit. Unfortunately, most of us need to say this very prayer every day, don't we? Most of us fall so easily into hypocrisy, into trying to cover up a secret sin or an angry heart. Most of us fall so far into hypocrisy by trying to pretend to others that we are anything but who we really are we forget to pray this prayer and we walk around with filthy hearts with no joy ignoring the spirit of God who lives within us and never experience the cooling healing balm of restoration so I wonder this morning That spirit, that voice in your head that won't go away, that voice of reason and conviction, that voice of truth, that spirit. I wonder this morning if he's causing you to see your hypocrisy and what your hypocrisy might cause you to lose your witness, your joy, your peace. And if you're tired of wearing a mask, if you're tired of secrets, if you're tired of lies, and you want to stand in the light, and in the truth and in forgiveness and grace. You see, it begins with you, doesn't it? God's talking to you. He's calling to you. Take the mask off. Stand in the light. Pray with me. Father, this morning, we're those people. We're those people. There are so many things that we need to get rid of in our lives and so many things that we need to cling to. And my prayer this morning is that we would come to this altar, we would stand where we are, but we would not leave here today without praying that prayer that David prayed, created me. Holy God, create in me a clean heart. A clean heart. Father, the Bible tells us that when we pray that prayer, when we mean it, when we desire our lives to be changed, that immediately you wipe the slate clean. Immediately you empower us to live differently. 
Immediately, Satan loses his hold. Immediately, hypocrisy fades away. When we come to you with open hearts, you change us. Father, let that happen right now in the lives of so many. In Jesus' name. Would you stand with me? The altar is open for you to come and pray. I'll be here to pray with you if you'd like. There's a decision on your heart if you're tired of living like you're living and you want something new. You want purpose. You want hope. You come.